Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Jo Howell, also known as Maverick Art. Jo is a photographic artist. She works with an alternative cyanotype process and is both a photographer and sculptor. Working with diverse groups of people, Jo creates artworks that challenges preconceptions and assumptions about our lives. She works with people living with dementia, autism, ethnic minorities, children and other groups, always working with an emphasis on art being for everyone. She is also a commissioned artist and at the prestigious Bose Museum, she foregrounded the true story of Countess Mary Eleanor Bose as both a victim of violent domestic abuse and as a significant contributor to botany research. Jo also lives with fibromyalgia, a long-term condition that causes pain all over the body, while she continues to create positive experiences for the communities she works with. And hello, Jo, and a huge thank you for joining me today and for making the time. A very warm welcome. Yeah, morning, Paula. Thanks for having us on. So, Jo, I was interested when I was researching all of your your work that you also described yourself as a Sunderland lifer and winner of inconsequential awards. And I I wondered, is your Sunderland identity bigger than any award? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Probably. I mean, I must admit, I play the fact that I'm from Sunderland and that I'm working class um, in my favour as as much as possible. Um, And I think it probably comes back to what you were saying in the introduction. It's really so that other people who are similar to me can can do the same so they can be like oh yeah well I'm from Sunderland um and I can make art so if Joe can do it I can do it that's a really (laughs) that no that's a that's a really good point because I I really did wonder because of your emphasis on you know uh working class roots which we know is quite often unfortunately prohibitive to art roots but whether that meant it was almost a culture shock for you or your family. You know, perhaps um, it was a non-traditional direction. Was that the case? Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, I come from all the women in the family, um, are really strong matriarchs. But of course, um, only my mum's generation really went to work. Like my nanas and things like that were stay-at-home mothers um, or like, not career women, so you know, low level cleaning jobs and um, and things like that. But yeah, I th- I think I realised that it was quite uh, counter to what my family generally would do when we had the good old conversation. Well, how can a breeze block be art? <laughs> and uh, and what was the other one? 
were told you think it's time you got a proper job, which oh. is always a good one. Yeah, it's a favourite, um, isn't it? Yeah. So in my mind, I, I've always been creative and I was like, well, it would be a waste if, um, if I wasn't using it because it, it, it's almost like a compulsion for us. So if I was, you know, sitting about in an administration job, it, it's it's going to wear us down eventually because that's that's not where my joy is. Um, but, I mean, they, they're used to it now. It's only taken 12 years. <laughs> but how did you find it on a personal level, um, taking that direction and having to make that commitment, particularly when there are those negative sounds around you, um, however well-intentioned they may be, um, how did you find the the courage, perhaps, to commit to that direction? I think I've always been a contrary so and so. So I've always been one of the people where you know, the more they tell you that you can't or that you shouldn't, the more I want to do it to say, well, actually, I can and I will. Um, so I think I don't know if it's if it's brave bravery or whether it's just being obstinate. <laughs> so um, but yeah, I think I made the, I made the right decision. I might not have all the money in the world, but uh, I come home every day and I'm I'm proud of the things that I've achieved. Um, and I feel like I've got a lot more control over the direction that I want to take things. So the choice to say that I was working class and to use use that as part of I guess my brand as a, as they would say was very yeah it was I thought that was really really important and actually for every single commission that I've ever written for I've, I've quite often stressed that uh, you know a lot of gatekeepers were, won't let so many northerners in and and I wonder why that is and I kind of I just want to change a few attitudes, um, you know, by saying, really, I guess, don't underestimate us. We're, you know, we might not have the same access to as much education as everybody else. And they definitely stop pushing kids to go to university now because it costs so much. Like for working class people, nine and a half thousand pounds a year is is just not not feasible. So, yeah, so I thought it was really, really important that I kept that um, about us. So I've got no intention of ever moving to London, like none whatsoever. Um, I think this in this day and age, because everything's gone so digital and I can have communications with people across in Brazil or in America, um, it's actually made the world a lot smaller. So I don't have to be somewhere else. I can actually still be in Sunderland but um still have the same kind of well sorry have more sway uh in in the long run so I think at the moment and luckily for me I was born in the digital age because I think if I had been born maybe 10 years uh, earlier than that that I wouldn't have grown up in this crossover stage and I wouldn't have realized the type of opportunities that I could make for myself um, because obviously they wouldn't have been there pre-digital. And again, I think that's why a lot of people in the Northeast, um, pr- you know, prior have found it really, really difficult to break into the art scene. Um, it's because, you know, before the advent of digital, a lot of people had to move to London 
uh, or, or to bigger city centres that had a, a better arts community in order to make it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people moving down from Sunderland to London would get a heck of a shock <laughs> going for, because the difference, you know, the price of a toffee, toffee crisp in Sunderland's like 60 <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you go down to London, you're looking at about twenty for a chocolate bar. <laughs> and when you think about it in those kind of terms, if everything costs you twice as much, then you you know you're working twice as hard just to just to you know live. So yeah, so I think I'll be staying in Sunderland, but mm-hmm. hopefully the idea is to drag Sunderland with us. So, yeah, 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 no, absolutely. And um, it raises so many um, important points. Obviously, the cost of living crisis is absolutely absurd. Um, And even prior to this new crisis, the cost of living in the south in comparison to the north is ridiculous. Um, But also, um, it's so important, isn't it, to be able to live where you want to live um, with your identity, with your heritage, without feeling that that has to somehow be compromised in order to be able to progress, particularly in the arts. It just shows how bad those barriers are in terms of those expectations. So it seems to me that you're quite prepared to face some of the sort of vulnerabilities that raises because you understand what those barriers are, but you're, you are nevertheless brave enough to confront those and stand your ground. I mean, those are very important values. I think it comes down to as well, like my particular uh, con- condition and, and way of living because of the fibromyalgia. Um, it's really unlikely that I'll ever have kids uh, because it would just be too difficult to look after them, possibly too difficult to carry them to term. So as a as a woman, a working class woman from the northeast, um, I think that was really important. If I had kids, I would not be able to afford to take these risks, which again is another is another form of of gatekeeping, which is you know keeping parents out of the arts as well, because. Like I can take the risk if it's just me, you know. If I've only if I've only got enough money to eat beans for a week, well, that's you know that's that's fine because it's my life and I have obviously chose to do that. But you can't put children through that. You can't put children through the um, yeah the the month to month. Like I can keep calm about it because I don't have responsibilities or people uh, that I need to take care of apart from myself. So I can I can have quite a selfish kind of practice but I think that in the end is a is a strength but it's also kind of sad because like I say I mean really I would have I would have loved to have been a mom I wouldn't have made that option I like that choice between the two um but interestingly enough how many mothers of my age in the northeast are actually artists um who are still you know striving to do stuff there are there are a couple but a lot of them, it's just too difficult. Mm, yeah, and it's uh, disproportionate sacrifices, isn't it? Because it's it's interesting that you might say it allows me to have a selfish practice, but actually is it selfish when you have to make such a huge personal sacrifice in order to be able to at least be in that space and continue to have disproportionate barriers? Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's it's a huge ongoing problem, isn't it, that the arts suffer from this kind of elitism? Yeah. I saw I think Joe continue with um, yeah. the new way that the um the arts council is structured towards uh like community arts and community building. Uh yeah, I think it's it's gonna it's gonna change the landscape a, a little bit, but I'm I'm not really sure whether it'll be in a positive action or or not really, because Sometimes, like, you know, these new funding ideas from the Arts Council can be a little bit reductive and obviously leave um, a lot of people out on the outskirts of it. I've been a professional artist for 12 years now and um, I've never gone for an Arts Council bid. (laughs) Just, Mm. I'd look at Grantium and just shut down. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it, it, it can be very complex. Um, But it's also that bigger picture as well, isn't it, of... Uh, political choices, the government choices made around the arts, which have obviously always been uh, relentlessly cut in favour of, say, the sciences, for example. Um, And yet um, a serious failure in understanding the importance of the arts, how they even contribute to the sciences, to exploration, to imagination, to well-being, to all of those things. It's, it seems very short-sighted. But how do you negotiate your survival, if you like, if you know that, for example, all these barriers exist, but also funding is fairly spiteful? How do you negotiate how, how you will continue? Um, so I guess what really kick-started uh, my diversification of the income streams that I have was was lockdown because all of a sudden I did have a couple of commissions that were were able to adapt and to carry on but not in the same way that I'm used to working obviously I couldn't be face to face with people we just had to either do zoom lessons or create like creative packs that got sent out to people which was, I guess, okay, because you still managed to keep in touch. But I suddenly realised, well, hang on, if I'm doing this on commission for other people, then could I also be doing it on my own and having, like, you know, extra income streams from online teaching, from... um, I started a Patreon as well. Um, And, again, it's just, like, trickle income, but the idea is if the options are there for people to support us that it, then they can without you know too much heartache they don't have to seek it out and all this kind of stuff the avenues I've already put there so if they do want to step up and they want to help out in any way shape or form then they can um, with the Patreon what I found was I'd actually combined that with my online teaching practice and what I ended up getting is a couple of Patreons, uh, patrons was to say that you could have free access to the online workshops that I'm doing. Well, not free, like you pay for your Patreon subscription, but then you can access any of the workshops that I'm doing. And and that seemed pretty good. So I know at the minute, I think I've got less than £50 a month coming in, but I've only been doing the Patreon for a couple of months anyway, possibly since the start of this year. So I think if I continue to make good content, 
and uh, engaging people in that way that slowly that trickle income will hopefully get a little bit more and the upshot is that at the end what would really like is that the patreon would possibly be bringing in enough that it could cover my household bills and mm. then and then anything else that I bring in from the arts practice can be really put into the arts practice essentially and and work it like that yeah it's, it's difficult you do have to diversify you've really got to be quite willing to um be flexible and change on a die like especially with the situation as it was over the pandemic that just became expected so you could have a phone call like literally two or three days before and be like oh somebody in the organization has been tested positive for covid so we can't like now run the session in the organization what shall we do so you've got oh, like no. you know 20 minutes or something to figure out right well we can go online and you'll need a pencil you know and that kind of stuff uh, so I, it, it is good because it has taught us to be resilient and to be adaptable in all of these things. But yeah, I mean, my ideal situation would to not be in a precarious, uh, like financial, because if eventually that's going to affect the work. You know what I mean? Like if I haven't, if I haven't got enough money for chemistry, then I can't make work. Yeah. So there's just like a few things you've just got to kind of keep on top of. So I'd, I'd, I'd rather spend money on chemistry than beans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But everything you're describing is about um, being vulnerable and being made vulnerable. So whether it's, you know, the pandemic conditions, but the um, difficulties around sustaining a professional life in the arts creates so much vulnerability that, there's more and more recognition that vulnerability is the same as courage, because unless you're vulnerable, how do you make those courageous choices? And I wondered when you mentioned earlier, you know, you come from a family of strong women. Do you think that that helps inform that courage? What would you say those influences were? Uh, so my, my mother in particular was uh, one of the first ones in the family to go out and, and get a career. And she started off as a computer programmer when computers were big um, magnetic disks that you actually physically had to climb under the floors to like, you know, to update. the <laughs> Yeah. So um, I'd always grown up with my mum working. And I took and her talking about the work that she was doing and having pride in it and and that just kind of rubbed off on me naturally. So I, I always thought to myself that I, I wanted to have a career and that I wanted uh, to do things, whatever that might be, with my life. Uh, and I, yeah, I think that mainly came from my mum, but my mum's mum as well is she's slightly different. She's she was still like a stay at home mum. But um, my granddad has Crohn's disease and was one of the first um, major operations back in the 60s where they kind of removed half of his digestive tract and replaced it with um, prosthetic wow. digestive tract. So it was like a really mad um, operation and obviously one of the first of its kind. And she had five kids. And, and it was like on death's door. So for like at least two or three years while all the kids were very, very young, um, 
she kind of had to carry them all on on what was a tiny, tiny sick, um, you know, a, a, a sick note wage essentially for my granddad with five kids. And, you know, like I say, he, he'd had this major operation. He could possibly die and all the rest of it. Um, and I think just because she she never acted like that caused her any, any bother. She was just like, right, let's get on with it. Let's make sure everybody's okay. And she keeps that kind of mentality even now. Um, and I think that's that's just something that I'd noticed from my mum and my nana. And I was like, and I think that's something that I would like to put back out into the world as well. You know, just right, we can do this. Let's uh, let's think about it. Let's think of a decent plan and let's get on with it. That seems to be the way that my mum and my nana work. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's just so important, isn't it, when you look back at what your formative influences were that makes all the all the difference to how you start mm-hmm. to think about your own life. And I wondered if that translates um, in your work, but particularly with the work for Sunderland Museum where you're celebrating female heritage in mining. I wondered if you could explain what's going on there for the listeners to understand what the project's about. So, so actually it's, um, it's a mixture of a few different projects. Um, I'm currently working for Discover Brightwater in uh, County Durham, down towards uh, Darlington. And I'm producing a sculpture trail that's informed by photography. So my cyanotypes that I've been teaching to the community, they're going to be reimagined as metal prints. Like, have I got one? I haven't got one. Anyway, they will be inserted into these railway sleepers and they will be put um, in the landscape around Sheldon. Uh, So when I started, when I got this commission, I didn't know very much about Sheldon. So obviously I had to go down and have a wander around and see what, you know, what kind of character the community in the area have. And it's a lot like Sunderland, but more more close-knit maybe because it's slightly more rural um but while I was going around I realized from talking to the community and from just like looking around that it's a very masculine landscape there are you know there are statues for the important men of the railway like Timothy Hackworth um there are nods to the fighting men in world wars one and two and there are nods to uh, the mining industries and also to like the football culture. But all of that um, is is quite masculine. And, and straight away, because obviously we live in a world which which is getting more equal. Um, my first question is, well, where are all the women? Because they would have been there. <laughs> it wasn't just blokes living in Sheldon. Um, and so after I'd asked that initial question, obviously I had to go about answering it. And so I talked to the local councillor and she actually told us that she'd been working with other women to produce a women's banner. So that's what the banner image is of. It's of a banner that they had produced for themselves, again, because they had noticed as a community that they just weren't represented. <laughs> so... Every year we have big miners picnics and big miners galas and everybody gets together. And um, if there's any 
brass bands left over from the miners and they go around and they play. We do like community uh, stalls and fundraising. And then all the people with the banners go on like a little parade um, and holding the banners up. So there's still like a lot of pride and uh, like community identity that's wrapped up in like this whole this whole thing, even though obviously it was like 1985 when we were closing down the mines, we still have this like leftover community aspect of it. And so when I'd seen this women's banner in with all of the other miners' banners, I was like, that really should be referenced in this sculptural walk. One, because it's letting people have a nod to obviously the past of women um, supporting miners because of course we kept them fed we kept them washed we you know we made sure everyone was as best we could educated and all the rest of it um so yeah that was definitely one of the things and also it was m more modern so that the women's banner had only been made in the last couple of years to draw attention to it so I thought that was really nice to kind of tie together the past and also the future about how how people will be reclaiming these spaces um, because obviously it's already started. I didn't start it, but I just was luckily 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 enough there to observe it and to just quickly capture it and put it in. There's another um, lady that I'm trying to chase down as well. Um, who is 96 years old and um, she's a botanist and she takes care of and surveys all of the plants in the Teesdale area. And so I'm trying to get hold of her to make a sculpture about her as well because she's amazing. Yeah. 96 years old yeah. and she rides a horse across Teesdale looking at flowers and stuff. Fantastic. So there, there, there are people there who are really inspiring. Um particularly like women's stories that are really inspiring. So that's yeah. that's what I'm trying to draw attention to. The Sunderland Museum thing came into it because I was doing some commercial work for the museum, like archiving uh, some miners' paraphernalia. So a lady from Easton Lane had collected uh, things from the 1985 miners' strike. So we had all of these wonderful very candid photographs that you know people who were involved with the strikes had taken and there was the handmade posters that they had as well there was the pin badges and even though it was like technically a commercial job I, I it resonated with us because I was already working in these kind of fields and again it was another the whole of the northeast came together in the 1985 miners strike um like it didn't matter which village you were from, we were all in it together. So even though the information that I'd photographed was from Easington Lane, there was nods to all of the other mines around the area because the women were organising all of the other women from different areas to come together and join in protest. And I just thought, actually, it's something that we might not even think about because whenever you see the pictures of the miners, um, the miners' protests, it's always quite violent looking you know it's um it's people being battered by police um on mounted horses and things like that but behind those scenes of violence there was a lot of love like there was a lot of people who pulled together to help take care of each other and to keep the communities going and I thought that was something that we should be extremely proud of 
Um, and also it was a really good nod to our fine tradition of protest. And I think I just kind of slide into that kind of area as, as well. Um, rights aren't given to people. You have to fight for them. And I think in the Northeast, we still have a lot of that understanding uh, that it's, it's not over. We aren't currently all equal. There's a massive disparity, as we've discussed, in you know, the cost of living and access to the arts and different things like that. So I think we're just in a, a kind of a good position to still call upon all of those skills and assets that uh, the communities had made back then, because they, they like I say, they're, they're still there in echoes. And, and so it makes sense that if there's that kind of passion um, and, and care already there in the communities, that like it's my job to kind of go in and amplify it if I can and draw a little bit more attention to it and say, well, they were doing it back in 1985 when they needed big changes. Okay, we might not have been massively successful because obviously the mine's closed. But the after effects of pulling a community together like that for that kind of fight um, is is definitely still a strong current that runs through people in the northeast. Yeah, um, it touches on on so many important things, and and um, one of the things um, it highlights is the role of art as well in terms of uh, protest or political expression or remembering. Um, and that's what really stood out to me about your contribution to this particular project, but also the images uh, that I've seen so far uh, of the women involved in the strike are very uplifting. I love the sense of solidarity and the, the poses that you found. I, I wondered if you might just want to illustrate slightly for the listeners who may not have seen them because they you you talked about a lot of love and I I felt that was very visible in the images that I saw yeah I think I think that was um I mean the banner itself the women's banner I can't really take any credit for that because they they had created that off their own back um, they were just very kind to share the experience with us and let me take photographs. But the banner itself, yeah, is really interesting. On one side, it has a, an image of the miners, the People's Parliament in Red Hills, so which was quite important. Again, historically, that was where the miners got together to, to say, well, actually, we deserve rights and all the rest of it. Um, so it's it's basically an image of the miners' parliament, which is kind of like a balcony and a downstairs in a downstairs area, and then um, there are lots of different women from uh, the northeast throughout history that were on it, and then on the flip side, which is the other one that you might have seen in the collage, it has more modern women with all of the all of the current protests that we might have to do so like hashtag me too um that was definitely one of them and and also the the tagline uh, the past we inherit and the future we build 
which was on a lot of the miners' banners back in the day. But again, it's fantastic to kind of think about that now because, yeah, if we are working in heritage, it's good to remember those things. But you don't necessarily have to remember them with rose-tinted glasses. You can remember them, like I say, in, in terms of the skills that you needed at the time, um, you know, to make those posters, to make the pin badges. Um, yeah, I think... It's 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 important to continue that idea of protest, especially in today's age where, of course, they've just changed the laws um, to say that noisy protests are illegal. And I don't know if you've I don't know who if anyone's ever been to a quiet protest. <laughs> I haven't. I definitely like, haven't. But I haven't okay, been to violent okay. protests. I've been to some of the biggest protests the UK have ever seen that were completely non-violent and purely exercised our right to protest, mm -hmm. our democratic right, which is now severely compromised. And it's really interesting to see this particular project emerge now, revisiting the minor strike, just from that point of view of being able to exercise that right, to see those principles of solidarity and also creating banners, the women that you referenced, the banners they created, that return to arts and crafts as part of that expression. You know, it, it, again, the important role art has to offer us in our defence for our eyes, for our expression. I wondered, Joe, if... Um, your family uh, or parts of your family were a mining family was was there was there an emotional connection from that point of view um so my dad my dad worked in the mines i mean it was it was quite briefly um i was born in 1985 and he wasn't working in the mines by the time i was born so he was already out on the outskirts of it when the miners strike had um, kicked off but yeah, he used to work at Monk um, Weymouth Colliery, which is near to where I live now. So the Stadium of Light, the football ground, was built on top of Monk Weymouth Colliery. And it was, I think it was one of the, the biggest undersea mines that there was. So it, it went out like two and a half miles or something into the uh, North Sea. And uh, my granddad, one of my granddads was a shipbuilder for many years. Um, and then my other granddads who had Crohn's disease, obviously, unfortunately, after he had all of that, um, he was signed off on, on permanent sick. But prior to that, he was a cathode diode TV uh, repairman. <laughs> <laughs> but I really lived in Sunderland for generations. Apparently, like, I tried to ask and... My nana June, who's my mum's mum, was was like, well, my great great grandma, so obviously don't use her as bad, used to own a pie factory, but apparently, um, apparently we drank away the profits, <laughs> so we don't have any pie factories anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe, I'd love to pop back to the ninety-six-year-old woman you mentioned, uh, mm. the botanist who's still horse riding. I mean, that's Dr. Margaret Bradshaw. Um, I've written her a letter and I'm kind of stalking her on Facebook. <laughs> and um, so I, I will be hopefully catching up with her soon. She's like I say, she's still very active. She's doing walks around the Teesdale area um, for people to help survey the plants. 
So I've got a little bit of work on with like the Jubilee kind of stuff, get that out of the way. And then hopefully I'll go for a walk with her and see if I can convince her to, you know, post her portrait. Yeah. Um, and do you think then, this will be an example of um, another woman that, that history buries in terms of their contribution? Because, of course, mentioning botany links to the significant work you did at the Bose Museum. So maybe you'd like to, just again for the listeners, to understand both stories. Yeah, so uh, botany is really interesting to me because of the process that I work in. So the, uh, and also because I really, I, I have a yard and I love gardening and things like that anyway. Um, but yeah, the process that I use, the cyanotype process, um, which is also blueprints. So it's the same process that uh, architects would use to make their really big plans. Uh, so it's a photographic process, which means that when UV light uh, hits the chemistry, it will set it and it'll turn it this brilliant blue. And the very first person to really get stuck into using this technique was a lady called Anna Atkins. And um, she produced the very first photographically illustrated science book. And again, she's another woman who gets lost to time because she signed all of our stuff AA. And for a lot of years, people thought that meant um, anonymous amateur, but it didn't. It was our name. It was Anna wow. Atkins. So she was kind of refound, I guess, in the 90s. Um, because like I say, she hadn't really been given a name. We were discussing these beautiful images and like they were calling that an, an anonymous amateur. Um, and anybody who looked at the images that she was making would know straight away, this isn't an amateur's image. It was a scientist image. She was, you know, we used to have people that would draw like botanical images. But of course, as soon as photography came, um, that allowed you to capture a very true likeness of the plants um, or algae or whatever you were looking at without having to have that draftsman skill, which opened up science to a lot more people who possibly just didn't have that skill. So the whole cyanotype process is really deeply rooted in botany, um, in women in science and in lost women's stories. So it just lends itself perfectly to the whole thing um, it's almost like some mad feedback loop so you learn about one person from the blue picture but then you're like well what about the blue picture how how did that come to be and then you're learning about another woman who was kind of written out of history yeah. so we all know who John Herschel is John Herschel was the guy who invented cyanotype but um, Anna Atkins was his next door neighbour who applied it and used it in, in a manner that influenced science forevermore because then we started using uh, photography and optics all the time because we realised, oh, there's a whole different world that we just can't see with our eyes, but we changed the mechanics ever so slightly and we've got a whole new view. So, yeah, the botany and that, it just seems to keep cropping up. Mm, amazing and, links that you've made as well, you know. yeah. I think I think possibly botany was one of those areas of science where women weren't actively kicked out, uh, which is which is why it seems like I can I can find a lot of these 
female characters within that bracket of science. Yeah. Because we were allowed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Plants. Yeah, you can do that. Just picking up on these really interesting links that you've made with botany, women, science, uh, women even being able to have any kind of presence in science, particularly in history. Um, And I was lucky enough to see your work at the Bose Museum as part of the Untitled 10 exhibition. And your work to foreground Mary Eleanor Bowes, the Countess, you described, you described your sculpture as a floral homage to feminine strength. So I just wondered if you could help illustrate to the listeners what that was, what you were discovering and what you were foregrounding. Yeah. So um, for the Untitled 10 Commission, we were asked to go to the Bose Museum and either find a way to connect with the building itself or the grounds or an object inside the collection. Um, And the object that immediately jumped out to me was Mary Eleanor's botany cabinet because it just seemed absolutely mad. It's a beautiful piece of furniture. You know, it's excellently produced um, Queen Anne style legs. It's got marquetry on it. You know, it it must be uh, hardwood. It's a really beautiful cabinet. Um, and when you think that, yeah, she was keeping plants and water and soils and bits and bobs in this beautiful cabinet, it, it, it kind of really struck me because, of course, in this day and age, there's absolutely no way you would get a beautiful piece of furniture like that created to then put plants in it. <laughs> so <laughs> it just kind of, it seemed so over the top, but yet also so loved and necessary for her because she actually yeah she she did use it she did keep her plants in it um and so that like really hit a chord with me and prior to really saying oh I, I like the idea of this really over the top botany cabinet was um was that I didn't actually know who Mary Eleanor Bowes was so that then obviously caused us to research um in her personality and her story And the more I read about our story, the more I was like, oh, my goodness, what the heck is poor woman? Um, So Mary Eleanor Bowes was known as the uh, sad countess. And there's a Stanley Kubrick film, I think, called Barry Leake or something like that. And um, and basically Mary Eleanor Bowes was the daughter of a coal magnate in uh, Newcastle. So she was new money. And of course, old money doesn't really like new money. Um, so when her father had died, when she was quite young, um, she'd already been educated in the same style as, as a man. So she knew about science, she knew about art, she was allowed to attend lectures. But when her father died, that was quickly put an end to. And her mother uh, married her off to the Earl of Strathmore. Is that right? Yeah, anywho. So um, her first husband and marriage was all was all right, wasn't too bad. She gained uh, titles and became a countess and um, he gained money because old money didn't have any money. So <laughs> unfortunately, back in those days, obviously, like mortality um, and your lifespan 
could be severely impacted by different things like tuberculosis and stuff like that. So her husband, the Earl of Strathmore, had, sorry, the Count of Strathmore, had then um, contracted tuberculosis and ended up dying. And what happened was after that, a few years down the line, um, because, again, she had money, but we're talking about this is like 1750s, so women realistically weren't supposed to hold property on their own. So it was always held in your father's name or your husband's name. And um, this man called Andrew uh, Andrew Stoney, I forgot what his name was. Anyway, he, he decided that he wanted uh, Mary Ellen's money. So what he did was he started writing horrible letters to the local press, maligning her, um, saying that she was a woman of loose morals and all of this kind of stuff but doing that anonymously. And then he would step up and defend that against the uh, against the things that he was actually saying. So from the very beginning, he was manipulating her into what eventually turned out to be a married relationship. Um, and what happened was basically he called himself out for a duel <laughs> because obviously he was the one writing the nasty letters to the newspapers. And then he'd been shot by this fake jewel and um, and he was on his deathbed. And he was like, oh, Mary, Mary I've, I've supported you. Oh, and the only thing I would love is to be married to you. And so he really hammed it up as if he was like literally about to die. She married him. And of course, he wasn't ill. It was all a ruse um, and he was absolutely fine. And what happened next was the next several years of Mary Ellen Bo's life were an absolute nightmare um, where she was immediately treated as, well, probably worse than cattle, I would suggest. Um, he was burning her. He was he would kidnap her. He was beating her all the time. She, you know, she couldn't speak to people. Eventually, she escaped and she was one of the very, very first women uh, to gain a divorce and keep her property. Um, and so it started from this beautiful cabinet and flowers and I guess this kind of folly of youth, her hopes, her dreams about these flowers and and what she would be able to accomplish by helping different uh, what is expeditions <laughs> to different places to collect plants. Um, and then obviously all of that just went out the window with with this horrible abuser um, who kept her under thumb for years until she managed to escape with one of her housemaids and, like I say, secured a divorce. At the time, it was pretty much unheard of. She, nobody had had a divorce, um, and especially a woman with property to actually keep her property Um and so I would say that that's probably one of the greatest forebears to women's rights in general. Um, one of the first women of the suffrage movement, Mary, she was from the Northeast as well. I'm not doing very well with names this morning. <laughs> anyway, another Mary um, who wrote the very first pamphlet about women's suffrage, who was also the mother of Mary Shelley. Mm. Um she, so she was like around at the same time as Mary Eleanor Bowes. Mary Eleanor Bowes had actually read one of her pamphlets, which I think was one of the um, main instigators for a fight for our freedom and for our money back. 
Wow, that's absolutely amazing. The, the histories that you've been able to draw out and, and piece together, it, it's it's not only important, it's, it's so impressive. And, and of course, when we go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, that this you as another woman who is achieving this, who is still even now in a place of social barriers and disadvantages. I mean, it's quite incredible, isn't it, that that journey continues, but it's just so amazing that despite your barriers or disadvantages, if you like, that you're, that you're overcoming, you're still giving voice to all of these other women in, in history, whether it's the Countess, whether it's the women in the miners' strike, whether it's your amazing 96-year-old botanist that you're hoping to have yeah. a walk with, you know, it's really, really significant work. Do you give yourself much credit, Joe? <laughs> um probably, probably not enough. I prefer if um I make the work and then other people can analyze it. Um and I think that's quite interesting when you do get other people who can, um, you know, write about how the art has um, encouraged them to find out new things and, and stuff like that. I think I try to keep humble as, as much as possible because, like I say, it's quite a big thing for me to let everybody know that um, you can do it. You can do it as well. Um, um you know, the barriers that we all, because everybody has barriers. They're just different for everybody. Um, but a, a lot of people in the Northeast who I work with, especially in these disadvantaged groups, confidence is a really, really big problem because there's a lack of it. Um, you know, some people are scared to even touch a camera because they're like, well, I don't know if I should because what if I break it and all this, that and the other. Like, why... Why, sh why should people feel so scared of, of being able, you know, to do things like that? So my whole ethos is just to try and get people to loosen up. Um, and I think part of that is to, to be a little bit self-deprecating, to just be like, well, look, it really, if I can do it, then you can as well. It just takes, you know, a little bit more thought and action. And if you need help, I'm always here. Yeah, I mean, it's a very generous and compassionate way of working that you have. And, and I'll quote you um, where you say, intrigue is a great way to destroy social barriers. We are curious creatures. And I wondered mm -hmm. if you'd like to elaborate on that because I, obviously this series is exploring curiosity as well as courage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what's your your emphasis on that idea of intrigue and encouraging curiosity? Yeah, yeah, I think um, that that's that's where my practice kind of lies. So the intrigue can begin at the point of us actually making work. <laughs> so I'll turn up with like a massive dark room tent. Um, or, or like me clothes horse with all my blueprints on it and things like that. So in a performative sense, like people already start looking at you and go, well, what, what the hell is she doing over there? Um, and again, because of the type of place and the type of people that I, I work with, okay, 
the arts council used to call them hard to reach, but it's not really hard to reach. It's just that, you know, we're trying to bring people into venues that before didn't really want them to come in. So, you know, these big white gallery spaces, the, the museums and things like that are a gatekeeper in their own rights because sometimes people feel really nervous crossing the threshold because they don't they don't see themselves in those spaces they don't see themselves reflected in that so my thing is take the mountain to muhammad just pack everything up if you can and go and work in front of the people you want to get involved and nine times out of ten that's enough to get them to get the intrigue peaked and the curiosity peaked and then you know they'll come and work with us um, and I think even on a small level like the, the difference that I've seen with the people that I work with because I can help them gain that confidence um, you know they can then take that on into the rest of their lives which is really really important um, yeah. you know like they might they might never touch a camera ever again but all the stuff that they learned about how to frame the things or like how images are speaking to them and how all, you know, all images are constructed for a particular reason. Like even just that basic knowledge, that suddenly changes the way you view the world because now you're thinking, right, well, what what is the aim of that image? What is that image trying to tell me or what is it trying to get me to do? And because we're like uh, immersed in images 24 seven, as like social currency. I think it's very easy for people growing up not to even consider that every single one of those images is made to satisfy a purpose. And, and then obviously it's up to us on the flip side to try and figure out what that purpose is. You find that that empowers people. You know, like, right, well now actually I understand why they've gone for that and, and it's, it's really it's really interesting to see once people have like opened their eyes a little bit because like I said it's really easy just to exist in the world and just to be like sensory overloaded by all of the images and the sounds yeah. and things like that and because like I say everybody's grown up with it mm. um it, it's very easy just to think well that's that's just the way it is and mm. it's not it's not sinister and there's nothing going on mm. but like when you just peel back the layers a little bit yeah. Um, and you say, right, well, can you t can you tell me how you should photograph a woman? And immediately they're like, right, can you lie on the floor and put your hand up against you? You're like, no, that's that's like that's glamour photography. And then, but then you have to explain that that's the difference. You don't have to photograph women, um, in a sexual fashion, but because all of the images that we see every single day, even if it is just you know a pair of socks or whatever they're all uber-sexualized, then that's essentially what people, particularly men, come into the photography sessions thinking that they're going to get. And then they get me and I'm like, it's none of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you're, you're, it's really important, isn't it? Because you're, you're, you're encouraging people to question their own thinking, to move away from automatic or prejudiced thinking, you know, biases yeah. that we, we sometimes don't know are even there. And... I noticed that in one of your blogs, you made a point of saying, don't be fearful of self-reflection. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what you had 
experienced in some of this community work where you are encouraging people to actually self-reflect, think about those automatic prejudice thoughts, like that example of woman glamour photography straight off, mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to, you know, uh, a woman protesting or in an act of solidarity, for example, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what have you encountered around that idea of fear, being fearful to self-reflect? I, th- I think um, it, it comes back to that confidence mark as well. Um, a, a lot of a lot of people that I work with would be terrified to make mistakes. And I'm like, look, I can talk to you until I'm blue in the face, right? But you make one mistake and you're going to learn 10 times more from that mistake than I would probably ever teach you. And so it's to try and change people people's mindset so a mistake does not necessarily have to be a bad thing yeah view it as serendipity instead of as a mistake so even if you like it oh well it's too bad and I don't want to show anybody learn from it yeah don't just bin it maybe make a few notes around it and then and then you know move on and learn from it so I'm just trying to loosen people up um to self-reflect that mistakes are also part of the process um, and to not be overwhelmed by the fear of making mistakes uh, because I, like I said a lot of people you you know you'll ask them to maybe take a photograph or to draw something and immediately I can't draw or I can't I can't use that camera um, and, and so you just you just have to overcome that and help people to realize that basically look if you haven't been maimed and you haven't been killed it doesn't matter <laughs> we, we can get honestly we can get over everything else um so I think that's that's my main thing is to just like to get people to to loose loosen up a lot um because if we always if we're always thinking about these beautiful finished products that are perfect then we're never going to make anything a consequence because you're never going to learn anything yeah no and I think it it, it just really highlights how important art can be as a way of exploring, being curious, to take some risks in a way that's healthy mm-hmm. and in order to actually develop some some courage to reduce that sense of fear because I'm not referring to courage in terms of heroics and, you know, superhero stuff. But for most people there's a real struggle to even be courageous enough to make a new choice or a life decision. It could even be changing a job or to stand up for someone else, to stand up for what's right. And we mustn't see that diminish. And it seems to me that curiosity is almost the best invitation to start developing that pathway would you agree with that idea I I agree Uh, yeah I agree 110 percent um I think one of the main things about removing arts from schools and from curriculums and things like that is is the fact that you're really um impeding people's ability to critically and creatively think for themselves um because like, I, I teach kids science as well, but like I just do it in a really, really fun way. So we're outside, we're using the sun. I'm telling them what radiation is, what a photon is, do you know? And they don't feel like they've actually had a science lesson. 
that's the best way to learn. Because then I know for a fact they'll go home and they'll tell their mum. They'll be like, oh, we used UV radiation to make a picture today. And and that's fantastic. <laughs> like if a, if a nine-year-old can go away and say stuff like that, spot on. But that's what they're missing out in, in the schools, right? Because they're not encouraging them to explore everything through art um, or through like physical action. A lot of a lot of stuff in schools is dictation and copying down off a board. Well, I can't remember anything that was dictated to me at school, but I can remember the physical experiments. And so you, I think it's just, you know, we have to, we have to be really careful because at the moment we're creating um, generations of children who, who only have access to arts on very special occasions. And that's not fair because it, it has the chance and the capacity to to really enrich their lives in all different aspects. Yeah. Um, as I race the clock, this is a common complaint of mine in my interviews because everyone's so interesting. And I try and keep it um, around an hour. And just so listeners know, I, d- I don't interfere in the editing. The edits aren't about my choices editorially. So they run like little docu interviews. So as I race the clock, because I know you have a meeting. There's just two more things I'd like to touch on. Mm -hmm. Because we were talking about that important relationship of developing healthy curiosity uh, and and courage, because the digital world, on one hand, is really great for increasing access, but it's also really frightening in terms of pushed content dictating the direction of our interests and that can deplete the cultivation of our natural curiosity and I wondered how you find that challenge uh, whether you're teaching or or in your own practice I mean I I tend to try and tell people uh, to cross over as much as possible certainly make things by hand but again if you've made something and like part of it you're not really keen on but some of it was nice how about we just re-photograph it and we pull out the bit that you really like um and then you can mess with that digitally and things like that I think the only massive problem is um digital poverty is the fact that like we don't all have access to the same stuff but I think um a, a combination of digital and analog so like actual physical activities um and things like that is is actually a very interesting way to work um and could have a lot of really good benefits but again i guess we're still at the beginning of this because we only really were forced to do all of this during uh, the lockdown so we're kind of still at the beginning of what i would call a new technological phase so we're now getting used to this idea of um, online and digital conferences, online digital classes and things like that. But I don't think they'll work just on their own. I'll, I would be like, you've got to have some homework. So after you've spoken to me, can you can you go out for a walk and can you photograph a tree? Can you photograph a leaf? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. make sure that then that ties back into the real world. Yeah. Yeah, we, we also run a massive risk of having... Um, a full population that's just permanently plugged in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so good. 
yeah, the, the natural world is is ever important. And I also wondered, because you've said, because you, you're, you're very open about living with fibromyalgia and that you were, in fact, housebound for nearly two years. It was so bad. Did yeah. art, did art or your sense of courage or curiosity or any other qualities help you survive that? Um, I mean, when I, when I was really bad, the problem with fibromyalgia is um, brain fog. So you get so much pain that essentially you, your brain just shuts down. You can't talk. You can't really um, see. So I, can't, I couldn't write or draw. Or do, I couldn't really do anything. I just had to, I just had to acknowledge that I was really unwell. Um, try medications and uh, try to get back on track. I would suggest though that outside of obviously being too too unwell to actually physically do anything that yeah it really helped us because as I mentioned before I kind of I make on compulsion like if there's a piece of paper next to us and I'm in a restaurant you know it's turned into a paper butterfly there's like literally I can't I can't stop from creating stuff so that really helped us because because I didn't feel completely useless and that was that was what was really getting us because you know when you are that bad that you can't really speak you can't read things you can't watch the telly you can't you know like literally you, you're just concentrating as much as you can on getting through the pain um that in those moments you just gotta add you just gotta acknowledge that you just need to rest um and just take it on the chin but outside of that, yeah, I needed to be still doing something. I still needed to have a voice. Um, otherwise, I think I think it might have driven us insane, in all fairness. Yeah. It would have probably been too much. But it helped um, in terms of positivity as well, because I'm a freelance. Um, I told myself it's up to me to make sure that I'm healthy. Um, you know, like, I'm not looked after by a job um, or you know, nobody's, nobody has a responsibility except for me to look after me. So once I had done that, um, and I just concentrated on getting well, and then I thought, I'll just tell people what's going on. Because I'm a freelance, it is quite risky, especially if you're working with new people, to be like, right, well, actually, I do have a medical condition. But what I tend to say is, most of the time I'll be all right. All I need you to do is to be understanding, um, especially when it comes to timetabling. So, you know, if you want us to do three days intensive, I'm not going to be able to do three days intensive. I can do one day intensive and then I'll have to have a couple of days rest and then I can do another day. Um, and I think, you know, as long as I'm open and honest about that, um, that really they should be fairly accommodating. Yeah. And so far everybody has been. Yeah. Um, because yeah. those can be quite reasonable adjustments, can't they? Just timetabling, yeah. you know. Exactly, exactly. Mm. But if I don't tell them and then I'm being a bit finicky about timetables and stuff, then they'll be like, well, why is she being so inflexible? Whereas if I'm just like, look, yeah. this is why I'm doing it in this fashion. Um, you don't need to make any special adjustments for us. Literally just be understanding that if I tell you on the morning of the workshop, which very rarely happens. Like I say, I've gotten very good at um, s scheduling in rests because I know yeah. I have to do it. So yeah. I, I, I do it. 
um, and that stops us from having really, really big flares. But sometimes, like wintertime, I can be down for a couple of months. And oh, wow. um, also, it just means I've just got to, again, adapt to that way of working. Mm-hmm. Uh, physically, standing up and teaching people exhausts us, but I love doing it. Yeah, It's such a big part of my practice that I'll, I will still try and do it mm-hmm. <laughs> as much as possible. It's it's so interesting to hear how you talk about navigating that and that sense of disconnection, if you like, the the risk socially that you can be disconnected or excluded, and almost from your own body. You know that your your mind is active, but your your body feels like it's working against you. And I wondered if I could just end this on a quote, actually, from you that talks about disconnection and I'll I'll quote you it's from your mental health blog and you pose the question how on earth did we a complex civilization become so violently disconnected from each other and I thought that was such a significant question and in relation in fact to the series cannot save us question um how do we respond? How do we respond to these huge and urgent questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, it's a big one, isn't it? I think I think we have to kind of curb a little bit of our we're all um, we're all islands kind of philosophy and realize that actually we're all very, very, very interconnected. And so, if my you know, if I have a bad attitude one day, it's not just a bad attitude that affects me, it's a bad attitude that will affect several other people around us as well. And I think it's just, I don't know how we do it. I mean, we'd need a paradigm shift, I think, in order, you know, to get the whole world to start thinking like this. But basically, you might be the centre of your own universe, but you're not the only one in the universe. So if we can just have a little bit of um, appreciation and a little bit of empathy for other people yeah if you want people to make space for you then try making space for other people as well and then hopefully in that way we'll we'll kind of we'll we'll cause a ripple effect that'll go through everybody um but yeah I think it is a paradigm shift <laughs> that yeah we really need. yeah which which art I think can help and art can help create those spaces for exchanges Joe, um you're a massive inspiration um and I know that you're hugely humble um but the work you do for communities and to pull women back out of history as well as well as the ongoing battle uh it's it's so generous of you as well uh uh considering the, the battles you have yourself so I can't thank you enough for for making the time today Joe. you're an utter oh inspiration um and I'll remind listeners that of course um I'm always interested to see comments and people's views on courage and curiosity or any inspirations um from from any of the interviews they've heard in the comments on episodes and also Joe's link to her work will be on her episode page and Joe is exceptionally generous because she uploads on YouTube and on her website all sorts of how-to kinds of workshops. So um, you're creating access for everybody on, on every level that you can. So I hope people make use of that. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Paula. It's been lovely to speak to you again. See you soon. Bye.